Today we come to chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, you'll find that chapter 6 starts on page 942 and continues on the next page. Paul wrote the letter to the church at Rome in order to emphasize the grace of God in the gospel. And as we have seen through our working through these first five chapters of Romans, Paul goes to great pains to explain both the necessity of the gospel as well as its nature. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul announces the theme of this whole book. He writes there that he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who will believe. And he goes on to say that in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So what he's telling us at the outset in announcing the theme of the letter, the gospel of God's grace, is that the gospel is power. The gospel gives power to those who believe. It is the power to save. The gospel is a message And it's a message that you will either believe or you will not believe. Specifically, the gospel is the message of Jesus Christ, who he is, the eternal son of God. What he has done, he became a man and he lived a life of obedience to God's commandments and then laid down his life on the cross in order to endure God's wrath against sin in behalf of his people. Well, and and that's significant. That matters because you and I are sinners and we need a Savior. And if a Savior isn't provided for us, then you and I will have to give an account for our sin, which means that we will have to stand under the wrath of God forever. Jesus's life of obedience to God's commandments was followed by a voluntary death on the cross. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I give it, I lay it down. And as he voluntarily laid it down, so by the power of God's spirit, after three days, he was raised from the dead, never to die again. And today he lives and one day he will return visibly, bodily. And all who turn from sin and trust him will receive him in the eternal kingdom that he comes to establish in the new heavens and the new earth. The gospel gives power to save. And the way the gospel provides this salvation is by granting righteousness to everybody who believes it. That's what Romans 1.17 says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You see, God requires everybody to be righteous, and by nature, because of sin, None of us is righteous. Paul, immediately after announcing the theme of the gospel in chapter 1, begins to explain our unrighteousness and why we need the gospel. So in Romans 1.18, he starts showing how the whole human race, Jew and Gentile, is sinful before God. As he puts it in chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. Not you. Not me, 
Not anybody that you know. Everybody is sinful. Everybody is unrighteous before God. And what that means is that there's nothing that you can do, nothing that I can do that will ever earn the righteousness that God requires. And that's a severe dilemma. That's a problem that we cannot solve. However, after Paul has made that point, he begins explaining in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, that God has done something to provide the righteousness that we need, that he requires. He has revealed righteousness, Paul writes there, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, God, out of grace, counts everybody righteous who turns from sin and trusts Jesus Christ as Lord. As he puts it in chapter 4 of Romans, verse 5, God justifies the ungodly. This is amazing. Ungodly people like you and me can be justified in the sight of God. How? By turning from sin and trusting the provision of righteousness that is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What Paul teaches in Romans chapters 3, 4, and 5 is the doctrine of justification by faith. We are justified by God through trusting and trusting Jesus Christ alone. God forgives sinners. God credits sinners with righteousness when they turn from sin and trust Jesus as Lord. Again, this is amazing. This is incredible news for those who know ourselves to be sinners because God does not require you to be good enough in order for him to forgive you. His grace and mercy are not dependent upon anything that you do or don't do. What God requires of you, he gives to you. That which he holds you accountable for, He provides by sending his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. In chapter 5 of Romans, Paul begins to start explaining what is involved in being justified by God. The the blessings that flow from justification. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 5, you see him launch into this theme by saying, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says, because of Christ, we have access to God. We have hope, a hope that will not disappoint us. We have the presence of the Spirit in our lives. We have the certainty of God's eternal love for us. We can know that we are reconciled to God. He is reconciled to us. In chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, where we have spent several weeks recently, We have an extensive explanation of how all of this works, how God can justify sinful people who trust in Jesus. And the point that Paul makes in this part of his letter is that faith in Christ actually unites us to Christ. We are joined to Christ. When you trust Jesus as Lord, You are, as Paul loves to say, in Christ. The person who trusts in Jesus actually takes on a new identity. You're identified 
with Jesus. The most important thing about you is that you're a Christian. You are one of Christ's people. You are following after him in faith. Just as being born into the sinful human race unites you to the first Adam, Paul says, the Adam who sinned against God and brought death and condemnation into the world, so being spiritually born again and trusting in Jesus unites you to him who is the last Adam, the one who came and did what the first Adam failed to do. The obedience of Jesus to God's commandments and his death in behalf of lawbreakers provide life and justification. So by nature, all of us come into the world in Adam and are constituted as sinners, condemned, spiritually dead, under the reign of sin. But through faith in Jesus Christ, we become constituted as righteous. We're justified. We're no longer condemned before God. We're made spiritually alive and we live under the reign of grace. So what this means is that every person here and every person you know that I know is either in Adam and under condemnation or in Christ and under justification, counted righteous. Either in Adam and spiritually dead and still accountable before God for your sin, or in Christ and made spiritually alive, having every last one of your sins atoned for, paid for by Him. If you do not confess your sin and renounce it and entrust yourself to Jesus, then you are still in union with that first Adam, and you're a slave to sin. But if by faith you Receive Jesus Christ as Lord. You're united to him. You're identified with him. Because of him, you now have right standing before God. You are reconciled to God. You are forgiven. You're justified in his sight. And that's all because of grace. It's not anything you did. Not anything that you deserve. Paul summarizes this point in verse 19 of chapter 5. Where he says, for as by the one man's disobedience, that's the first Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. Well, Paul concludes his main point about justification by faith by highlighting the reign of grace or the sovereignty of God's grace. We see this in verses 20 and 21, the end of chapter 5. Look at those verses this morning. He writes this, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, these two verses raise two very significant questions. First, doesn't this understanding that salvation is all of grace, encourage people to go on sinning? I mean, doesn't that logically seem to follow? And if salvation is attained not by keeping the law and doing good, then what's the real use? What's the real point of God's law? Why was it ever given in the first place? What is its purpose? 
Well, Paul takes up both of those questions. In chapter 6, he deals with the first question. Salvation is all of grace. Why don't we just go on sinning? Because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then he takes up the second question. Well, what's the purpose of the law in chapter 7? In chapter 8, he returns back to this idea of being justified and the eternal security that the believer has because of trusting Christ and concludes that chapter with that great doxology that nothing will be ever, ever able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, that brings us to our text today. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, Paul takes up the first question that I mentioned. Theologians call this question the question of antinomianism. If grace abounds more than sin, then why shouldn't we just go ahead and sin knowing that there will be more grace in response to this? Antinomianism means against the law. And the antinomian person reasons like this. Since salvation's all of grace, then it really doesn't matter if I go on sinning. And it really doesn't matter how much I sin, does it? Well, that is a distortion of what the Bible teaches concerning salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So beginning in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul gives a clear response to this distortion. And then he spends the rest of chapter 6 underscoring his point, unpacking it, giving us arguments to support it. Chapter 6 can be divided into two sections. Verses 1 through 14 show how a true Christian cannot go on living contentedly in sin. Why? Because he's united to Jesus Christ. A true Christian is somebody who experiences oneness with Christ through faith. And then in verses 15 through 23, he says, in addition to that, a genuine Christian is someone who experiences the joy and freedom of being a slave to Christ and therefore a slave to righteousness. Christians rejoice in slavery, their slavery to Jesus Christ and to living righteously. So now let's turn to our text. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And see how these two verses provide a platform for what Paul is going to then elaborate in the remaining verses down through the end of the chapter. In order for us to gain some context, however, I want to read those first 14 verses. So let's start in verse 1 of Romans 6, page 942, if you're using one of the Bibles provided. And I'm going to read down through verse 14. I encourage you to to get a copy of God's Word in front of you because I'm just going to walk through these two verses and want you to see the words that God inspired Paul to write that we might hear what it is he's saying to us this morning. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 6, verse 1 down through verse 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Justification by grace through faith does not lead to sin. It is no pretext for living in sin. Paul makes this point first by considering the question that justification by grace through faith actually raises in the mind of an antinomian. And secondly, he states the answer to this question. And then finally, in the last part of verse 2, he gives us a general summary statement that explains the reason for the answer. So let's look at these two verses under those three headings. First, what is the question? Well, having elaborated justification by faith, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, Paul anticipates a wrong implication, a wrong inference in the minds of some from what he has just written. Justification by grace through faith can provoke two wrong resources, responses. One response is legalism. And another response is, as I've mentioned, antinomianism. You see, legalism objects to this doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Legalism says, where's the law? Where does obedience fit in? Legalism teaches that you must do some things in order for God to accept you. It regards keeping the law, keeping rules as the basis of God's acceptance. So if you're not doing enough, then you can't hope that God really does accept you, really does love you, really has justified you. But antinomianism distorts justification by grace through faith. If where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, as Paul's just written in verse 20 of chapter 5, then let's sin more so that we can get more grace. Well, as a good teacher, Paul anticipates these wrong inferences and he wants to deal with both the objection and the distortion by showing that justification by grace through faith does not lead to sin. The distortion of antinomianism inevitably arises where justification by grace through faith is taught. Antinomianism is a parasite It can only exist where a right understanding of God's grace and salvation is being taught. In fact, if your explanation of salvation doesn't open you to the charge of being an antinomian, then you're not preaching it the right way. In chapter 3, 
Paul himself reveals that he had been charged with antinomianism. Some, as he said, erroneously taught, said that I teach these things. Well, antinomianism in a superficial sense seems to fit with this doctrine. If salvation's really of grace, if we're serious about grace, then why can't we live lawlessly and still be saved? If we're not saved by our good works, then good works really aren't necessary, are they? So why should we be concerned with trying to do what is righteous? Now, you may be sitting here thinking, nobody really believes that. But indeed, they do. There have been people historically that have formally taught it. And there are people today that continue to imbibe it. Most of the time, however, this way of thinking is more subtly imbibed than it is formally taught. Many people presume upon God's grace by telling themselves that sin isn't really that serious. Haven't you faced that thought in your own mind? We joke about it, but haven't you ever taken it seriously? You know, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission, right? You know, it's wrong. You know, it's wrong. And it's as if we look upon sin and God's grace and think, well, yeah, I'm going to sin. But I mean, after all, isn't it God's job to forgive? So why not go ahead and deal with sin? There are people who have formally believed and taught antinomianism. One of the most graphic examples of this in history comes from the Russian monk Grigory Rasputin in the late 19th and early 20th century. He was the counselor to the last of the Romanov Empire, uh, Nicholas II. And Rasputin, who was self-taught, believed that Salvation comes through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. Therefore, if you want to be a good Christian, you ought to sin as much as you can, intending all the while to repent because in the process of that, you get more grace. He said it's every Christian's responsibility to sin as much as you can so that you can experience as much grace as you can. I was reminded this week of a, a sad responsibility that fell upon me many, many years ago where a local pastor, associate of mine, a friend, had fallen into grievous sin. I went to talk to him about it and to call him to repentance. And he resisted every effort to call him to repent of his sin. And he said to me in one of those conversations, he said, you know, said, I know more about grace than you do. Because as he went on to describe what had been happening in his life and ministry while he was carrying on an adulterous relationship with multiple women. God was blessing me. God was causing the church to grow. What is that? That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is warning against, what he is repudiating. It's antinomianism of the worst sort. It's a perversion of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. Now, remember, that this distortion of God's grace cannot arise where God's grace is not properly being emphasized and taught. Nobody accused the 16th century Roman Catholic Church of being guilty of antinomianism. But they did, teach Mar they did accuse Martin Luther 
of teaching antinomianism. Why? Well, because the 16th century Roman Catholic Church, as they continue to do today, says that a person must do good works in order to receive the grace that will save a sinner. And Luther said, no, salvation comes to sinners by grace alone. And so he was accused of antinomianism, which he was not. If we're going to believe and preach the biblical gospel, the true way of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, then we must emphasize that it is all of grace, that God really does justify ungodly people, even the worst of people, who turn from sin and trust Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the message that the Bible sets before us. That is the good news that he offers to real sinners. And I hope you believe it. If you didn't walk through the doors believing it this morning, I hope you will leave believing it today and that you will believe it for the rest of your life. God will save you. Not if you're good enough. Not if you try hard enough. Not if you quit doing things or start doing things. God will save you for a look to His Son, Jesus Christ. Turn from sin. Confess your sin and trust the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus, who came to save ungodly people. And God will, by His grace, receive you. Do you believe this? Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? What is your hope? What is your standing? What's the foundation that we live upon? Looking to God as being reconciled to us. It's not anything we do or have done. It's Jesus. It's all that Jesus has done. It is what God has provided for us in Him. And if you have not come to that place in your life where you see Jesus in this way, then friend, no, my prayer has been for you this morning that God would come and open your eyes and show you the beauty of Jesus and turn you from your sin so that you might trust Him and in trusting Him, experience His grace of salvation. Salvation truly is by grace alone. But does that mean then that we should continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, after asking the question, Paul answers it. And he answers it pretty decisively. It's short. In the original language, it's only two words. In our English versions, it comes across as three words. By no means, he says in verse 2. By no means. This is a phrase that Paul uses 14 times in his letters. Uh, one student has said that this is the close the Apostle Paul ever comes to cursing. That there's just this adamant cry. Are you crazy? This cannot be. It follows a proposition or an idea that is so ludicrous that it must be adamantly renounced. Never, God forbid, perish the thought. The idea is unthinkable. If you think that the salvation that is found in Jesus lets you go on living in sin, then you are not understanding the biblical teaching of salvation. You have missed it completely. If your understanding of God's grace causes you to downplay the seriousness of sin, then make no mistake, you are completely wrong in your thinking. As Paul put it in verse 21 of chapter 5, grace reigns, how? 
through righteousness. Through righteousness. The doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is dangerous. It's dangerous because it can be so easily distorted into an antinomian way of thinking and living. And Paul intends to slam that door shut for us this morning. He says that such reasoning is by no means correct. It is completely wrong. And having then just given that decisive statement of renunciation of an idea that is so ludicrous, he then gives a brief summary explanation of it with a rhetorical question. The explanation is found in the last part of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, he's going to elaborate, but he doesn't start with an elaborate argument. He starts with a rhetorical question. His question shows the absurdity of the idea. It shows the inherent contradiction of the distorted inference that has been made from his teaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls calls this phrase, how can we who died to sin still live in it, one of the greatest and most important statements in this whole epistle to the church at Rome. In some sense, you'll find this statement repeated throughout chapter 6. We see it immediately three times reiterated. In verse 6 of chapter 6, we know that our old self was crucified. We died. We were crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We see it again in verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We see it in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. A Christian is somebody who has died to sin. And Paul speaks very specifically here. It's a definitive act. He doesn't say a Christian is somebody who's dead to sin. That's true. But he says a Christian is somebody who died to sin. We died to sin. He has in mind an event. He has in mind something that has actually happened in space and time. Something that is a historical Reality, something that happened once and forever. Well, when was that? When did that happen? Well, it happened at the point of your conversion. Brothers and sisters, when God's spirit came to you and convicted you of sin and turned you away from sin and opened your eyes to see Christ and to trust Christ, And you, by faith, welcomed Jesus Christ. You embraced Christ in that historical event. You died to sin. Because you can't have Jesus and your sin. You can't cling to Jesus and your sin. You've died to sin. Paul here in this language is speaking factually. He's speaking historically. He's speaking about something that actually happened. That's what it means to be saved by grace. You died to sin. Now, this does not mean that a Christian will automatically and completely experience everything that such death entails. 
No, we, we have to go on living and growing to work this out. But what it does mean is that a decisive break with sin has occurred. This is why Paul writes the way he does in verse 11 of this chapter. When he tells these who have died to sin, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. In other words, you really did die to sin. You really did become alive to God. Now just act like it. Start living like it. Take this truth and let it begin to shape the way you conceive of yourself before God. The way you think about your life in Christ. And seek to live in accordance with that. You know, when God delivered the Old Testament Israelites from slavery in Egypt, He displayed His power in mighty acts, ten plagues, that caused Pharaoh to crumble before him and to finally not simply say to Moses, yes, you may leave, but take these people out, get them out of Egypt. He led his people across the Red Sea, led them into the wilderness. And through that mighty display of gracious salvation, those Old Testament Israelites died to Egyptian slavery. They were free. But it took them 40 years to get over a slave mentality. Some of them had to die off a whole generation before they were prepared to live as the free people that God had made them to be. Well, this is what Christians must learn also. It's a point that Paul repeatedly makes in this sixth chapter of Romans. He states it bluntly and emphatically here in verse 2. And brothers and sisters, we must understand that what he says here is true of every Christian. If you're in Christ, it's true of you. You died to sin. Something real, something significant happened at the moment of your conversion. Ephesians 2.19 puts it like this. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You used to be this, but now you're this. Something happened. You died to sin. You became alive in Christ. Or Colossians 1.13 says this. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You were translated. When you trusted Christ, you, you were picked up out of this state of condemnation and sin. And you were put into this state of being justified before God and alive in Jesus Christ. It happened. It's reality. It's like a person who's transferred from Siberia to Cape Coral. Average temperature in Siberia is 23 degrees year round. Average temperature in Cape Coral is about 76 year round. Well, can you imagine if you got transferred from Siberia to Cape Coral and you keep living as if you're in Siberia? You're getting ready to go to the store, so you put on your heavy coat and your hat and your mitten. I mean, you would, you'd be miserable, right? You couldn't, you couldn't live well. This is the point that Paul's making. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, we died to sin. That happened. God translated us from the kingdom of darkness 
And he's established us as citizens of heaven in the kingdom of the son of his love. Fundamental to this fact is the destruction of any idea that you can be a true Christian and go on living in sin and rebellion to God. Now, Paul doesn't say that a Christian cannot sin. He says a Christian cannot live in sin. What he's saying is that a Christian can't sin successfully. You can't just go on headlong into sin without sorrow, without some measure of conviction, without genuinely seeking repentance, wanting to be resolved from this situation, without some effort to put sin away. Christians can backslide, but you'll never find a backslidden Christian who's truly content and happy. Some level he knows. Some level he knows that he is living contrary to the way that God has called him by his grace to be. You know, we sometimes shy away from this issue and stating it as starkly as the Bible states it. But brothers and sisters, we should not hesitate to affirm what the Bible does indeed teach. Listen to the way the theologian John Murray puts it. A believer cannot therefore live in sin. If a man lives in sin, he's not a believer. Are you living in sin? Are you satisfied to go on in your sin? Have you signed a peace treaty with your sin? So that you think I'm just going to manage it. And yeah. I'm a Christian, but you know. I'm not willing to let go of my sin. And you think somehow you figured out a way to live. In sin. Hoping that you're in Christ. Paul says. That's an impossibility. How can we who died to sin still go on living in it? Friend, if that's you, then may God open your eyes this morning to see that your comfort with rebellion against your creator is a sure sign that you have not yet tasted the grace of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. I call upon you to confess your sin, turn from it, and come to Christ. Trust Him. Brothers, sisters, have you become too casual about sin? Have you found yourself easily justifying your sin? Even to the point where you laugh it off? No big deal. I mean, after all, you're under grace, right? Oh, that's a deadly way of thinking. It's contrary to the way of Christ to think like that. And you must renounce that thinking and come back to what the Scripture says and confess that sin and cry out for the strength that God gives by His Spirit in the Word to recognize, no, I died to sin. I will not be satisfied to still go on living in it. This is the attitude the Apostle Paul tells us we must have towards sin. As those who have been justified by God's grace, we must renounce sin as it remains in our lives. 
We must declare war upon the remnants of it and seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ to overcome every last vestige of it. Why? So God will love us? No. So God will accept us? No. Because God loves us. Because God accepts us. We learn to hate sin the way that He hates sin. And we forsake it because it displeases Him. Justification by grace through faith does not lead to continuing in sin. When God saves a sinner, He removes him from the reign, the dominion of sin, and He translates him into a state where grace now reigns. And grace always reigns through righteousness. So, remember, Christian, you died to sin. When you came to Christ, you died to sin. Remind yourself of this. Remind other brothers and sisters of this. Consider it when the temptation comes to you. When sin seems so attractive to you. You belong to Christ. He shed His blood for you. And through faith in Him, you are in Him. You are united to Him. You are identified with Him. All because of grace. So live as God's blood-bought holy people. Not by trying to earn a right standing with Him, but because He has graciously, freely, lovingly, completely justified you. And He has done so for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this great salvation. We confess that we do at times get crossways in our thinking. We ask that your spirit would teach us this morning in a way that would drive deep into our understanding and into our affections what happened to us when we came to know you through faith in Jesus. Oh God, help each one of your children here this morning to be able to say with the Apostle Paul that we died to sin. And there's no way that we can still go on living in it. I pray for those here this morning who are living in sin. Some of them have covered it up. And they become very skilled. In how they've reasoned it in their minds. Oh God would you not deliver them this morning. From such bondage. Show them Christ. Overwhelm them by your grace. And draw near to them. And draw them to yourself. Turn them from sin. Grant them true repentance. True faith that they might find forgiveness, that they might know reconciliation with you, our creator. Seal to our hearts the truth from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.